Welcome to Musicians vs. the World, the podcast where we explore different aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am so excited today because with me I have concert pianist, composer, and arranger David Troy Francis, and he's here to tell us his incredible story that has taken him all across the country, that's taken him to film, to the small screen, to TV, to the theater, to church services, and to the recital hall. And so he is here. He was gracious enough to talk with me today and to tell his story. David, thank you so much for coming today. My pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Now, I can't wait to hear your story, but I would love to first kind of talk about how you and I met because it surprised me in so many ways. So right now you're music director at Simpsonwood United Methodist Church, correct? Yes. Yeah, so what is your role there? I am the pianist, the organist, and the director of uh, music, the choir, anything musical. <laughs> right, yeah, and you do a fantastic job of it. Mm -hmm. And so as part of that, you've kind of created this community outreach where you have local musicians come and perform right. for your we church. Have, we have three exquisite grand pianos in the church uh -huh. and a beautiful building, beautiful buildings. Yes. And um, I wanted the facilities to be used. And there's nothing better than to offer them to people that are studying musical arts or at the beginning or even in the middle of their careers mm -hmm. to give them a place to perform. And the way I met you, I reached out to the DeKalb Greater, whatever it's called, Piano Teachers Association. <laughs> yes in that conversation, asked them if they had two gifted piano students that would be uh, able to perform for our extended 15-minute prelude. Yeah. And one of them was your student. Yes, yes. And it was so fun. And this is the thing that really got me. So I, there's this big, beautiful room, gorgeous piano. He's up there practicing. And the thing was, is that it was the first time I had seen someone mic a piano properly in a church. Wow. And, and it, I, it was amazing because I saw, oh, wow, this is actually mic'd properly. There is something different about this music director if he puts that much thought and that much care into miking a piano. I, I have to give credit for that to our audio engineer, Lim Metter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was good. And, and I usually I've worked with audio engineers and they'll do that. But it usually is like the music director that says, let's make sure this is mic'd really well. Sometimes they don't really care yes. about how it's <laughs> how it's mic'd. And so I thought, oh, wow, there is something there's something different about this music director. I'm not sure what it was. And then we chatted and you told me all about your history, how you were in L.A., how you've done how many how many recordings? 10 albums now? Yes. Oh my goodness. It's incredible. And so I thought I've got to hear more about this story. How did you get involved in music? Back in when the public school system used to support arts uh -huh. um, in the second grade, I was the product, the child of working class parents and my elementary school offered after school piano lessons mm -hmm. twice a week. I went home and told my parents I wanted to play and do that. And they said, no, it's $10 a semester, which was a lot of money then. Mm -hmm. If you still want to play in a year, we'll let you. So third grade, 
I said, I still want to. So they allowed me to play piano. And that's, I took piano in the public school for two years. We didn't have a piano. They used to give you one of those cardboard ones that fold up and you unfold and put it on a table and play. It makes no sound, but it has painted black and white keys or printed. And it was almost a year before my parents heard me play. Really? Uh-huh. So how, how did you practice without any sound? Well, you just play the, the cardboard keys. <laughs> <laughs> and like imagined what it sounded like? Uh-huh. Yes. Wow. So that developed your ear from the very beginning. <laughs> my mother, bless her heart, would say, you're playing too loud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty funny thing. <laughs> you could hear those click, 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 click. That is so funny. Well, and then the second thing that so impressed me is that when you played, again, this was a dreary, rainy day in the middle of spring in Georgia, and there was so much joy and so much love in the way that you play. It was just completely opposite of the weather outside. You would have thought it was like the sunshiniest, brightest, warmest day that you could possibly imagine because you exuded that much excitement into your playing. I was so amazed. I was so impressed. Where does that love come from for you? That's a hard question to answer. I love music. Love music. I love playing the piano. And it's something that I know that I do really well. Mm-hmm. And that I've probably practiced right at a hundred thousand hours in my life. And it has always been an escape for me, always, and an opportunity to find n- not wisdom, but ins- insights into my heart and my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I truly love it. Even when you were just playing on your little cardboard piano, you loved it? I did. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly did. So did they end up getting you a piano or what did they end up doing? Yes. um, We had a family that we were very close to that I'm still friends with. um, And they had the same four kids as our family, exactly the same ages. (laughs) And... The father of that family was from New York and loved classical music. And we were all over at their house and they had a spinet piano. And my mother said, why don't you show us what our $10 a semester is going to <laughs> So I played and Mr. Lunin told my parents to buy me a piano and oh used the word prodigy. And so they, within a week, I had a Cable Nelson spinet piano that I kept until I was 20 years oh, old. Oh, really? Uh-huh. Wow. And did they keep you with at the school lessons or did you, at that point when the word prodigy was dropped, did they get you a I private stayed, tutor? Uh, no, I stayed at the school for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I started taking privately from the teacher at the school for another mm-hmm. two years. And then I went to a more comprehensive teacher. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, you started working pretty early in yeah. your life yes. playing the piano. Yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, my piano teacher at the school was a choir director. And so at 10, he 
hired me to go play at a Baptist church. And I was already playing at my church, but for free. And uh, I couldn't believe somebody would pay me to play the piano. And Mm -hmm. they they paid me like $10 every three months. But it was, you know, for me, that was like, wow. And Mm -hmm. um, that I just kept going from there. (laughs) It's always funny, that first check that you get for playing the piano, it's kind of like opens up this whole world of, wow, I could make a living doing this. Uh, whether that's realistic or not, I don't that's know. <laughs> that's true, but you think it. So what would you do? Would you play for the choir or would you play for congregational things? What What was your job? Uh, yeah, organist, pianist, accompanist, mm-hmm. play the services, mm-hmm. all those things. I like all different genres. Mm-hmm. Classical is my first love. Mm-hmm. But I, I accompanied... Um, you knew the Blackwood Brothers were. It, I don't. They were a very famous gospel group. You oh, know okay. who the Oak Ridge Boys are? Mm-hmm. Yes. They were the, the, the generation priors, Oak Ridge Okay. Boys. Gotcha. And there were a bunch of brothers, and five of them, I think, were killed in a plane crash. And so they reconstituted the group with the surviving brothers and other non family members one of whom was the father of somebody I went to uh, junior high with. So I got to accompany them at rehearsal and go to gospel conventions. And so I love gospel. <laughs> and country music is, of course, there. Stacks record in Memphis, Stacks mm-hmm. record is there. So you have all these influences, and, and I love them all. <laughs> so, you know, musical theater. And so all of those tend to make their way into my music. In the Baptist church I went to as a child, the it was uh, let's say not po- not common or popular to be a working class kid playing the piano in my neighborhood. But the pianist at this church was so lovely to me, mm-hmm. and she was. Do you know? Uh, when I say Southern Baptist Church piano playing, what I mean, <laughs> I do. Right? She taught me how to do all of that, <laughs> <laughs> so I can play that way. <laughs> <laughs> and when I play concerts, I often conclude them with an arrangement uh, from my hymn albums of some of the hymns, and I will tell the audience that they will notice that I'm going to play the role is called Up Yonder, for example, that the further into it it goes, the more Baptist it gets. <laughs> also ended up in LA like that's a far cry from Memphis how did you go there what happened um I was very successful in Memphis uh-huh. I, I opened a performing arts school with a very gifted choreographer and so we offered voice piano ballet jazz and were very successful in every way you can imagine financially numbers whatever and our students would win talent, Miss Tennessee, Miss Mississippi, Miss Arkansas, 
There's a huge competition there called the Mid-South Fair that has 20,000 acts a year. We would win that three out of four years. Mm. And I was supposed to go to Eastman when I got out of college. I went to Rhodes College. And my younger brother was killed in a car wreck. Oh, I'm sorry. Thanks. It's been decades now. (laughs) But my parents asked me to stay home for a year. And in retrospect, I think one of your questions, you asked me about regrets. Mm. And in retrospect, I wish that I had gone ahead and gone to graduate school Mm. because I never went back to graduate school. Instead, I was bored, so I opened this performing arts, which became very successful undertaking. And I did that until I was 28. And at 28, I was a gay person in a very bigoted city, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Forget homophobia. They can't get over the misogyny or uh, the racial issues, right? Right. And I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And I wanted to explore my personal life. And so I went to Los Angeles. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Was that hard to walk away from this big business? It was very hard. Uh, It was my lifelong friends in the city. and Yeah, it was tough. Did you know anyone in L.A.? Uh, I had a great aunt and a great uncle. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's so brave of you. In retrospect, yes, it was. But yeah. you don't know what you what you don't know when you're young. You know, I didn't go there to be a part of the music industry necessarily or mm-hmm. to be in the film industry. I went because I wanted to learn more about me yeah. and uh, the world. And... I am so glad I moved to Los Angeles because I thought I had died and gone to heaven. It was so different from Memphis, so welcoming, open. There were, I don't know, 130 languages spoken in the city schools. Mm -hmm. So there are all these outsiders that make up that city. And so you feel a part of it, even though you're an outsider. There was Mm. a community. Um, and this is at a time, this is, you know, before AIDS. And so it was a very different time in the way that people looked at gay and lesbian and transgender people. And I just was so happy and excited. And naturally I had to work. So I started working on ways to do things I loved that made me money. Because <laughs> you wanted to stay. Uh huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you said you were on. You went there to try, kind of learn about yourself. What did you learn about yourself there? I, I well, I learned that I was an idiot. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> that my upbringing had been incredibly narrow. Okay. And, you know, and that there were other ways of perceiving the world and who I was in it than the way that I had been taught as a child. I see. That's a pretty important thing to learn, you know. Mm. And Mm -hmm. so that was, you you learn about value of yourself. And, you know, that was lovely. 
So you had to find a way to make a living to stay there. What did you do? I found an agent and uh, she would book me into gigs. Mm -hmm. And then she booked me into, uh, there's an upscale uh, hotel in downtown LA called The Grand. So she booked me there in Mm -hmm. a lovely hotel and it paid well. So, you know, you go play four hours from five to nine. And then she booked me down the street in the new Otani, which was an upscale Japanese businessman hotel. And I love that because in my bar where I played, there was a Taiwanese waitress, a Cambodian waitress, Mm -hmm. Japanese bartender, uh, Guatemalan barback, and another guy from Central America. And I was the only Caucasian and the nationalist Chinese woman. And I still talk like this back then. (laughs) And I made great trips there. But she said, you will do even better if you learn to sing Japanese folk songs and so she taught me by rote. And uh, <laughs> and so I learned this series of Japanese folk songs. And I learned, Uwe o muite aluko namida ga kobodre nai yo ni tsukiyaki. It was very famous back then. And she was right. Uh-huh. Those guys went crazy. That this, you know, <laughs> young 28-20-something-year-old white boy could sing in their language. It was fun. <laughs> and your income went way up after that. It did. It, it, it did. <laughs> I guess I never thought of myself as a star. Or, no? You know, particularly wanted to be one. I just <laughs> wanted to be happy and find joy. At the park is where I bark and I can run free. At the park, I leave my mark upon the old tree. At the park, just pull Well, that's park, great. Like Tell me about Bark. Bark. I had been hired um, to compose four or five songs for a mockumentary called Dogs at ABC, right? And these two young guys had written this very silly. A mockumentary is a fake documentary yeah. about a non-existent, fictitious thing. And it was a story about this seasoned actor off, off Broadway who hated playing in this stupid show about dogs. Which <laughs> had been fixed and he had a big X across his crotch, right? <laughs> and he was just disgusted that he was in the show. Uh-huh. And so they wanted me to write some songs. And so I did. And after that mockumentary was completed and shown, I went to my friend Bob Schrock, who created and directed uh, Naked Boy Singing, Mm -hmm. which uh, originated in Los Angeles and has since gone on to be off-Broadway for 17 years and in 50 countries. Mm -hmm. And I said, I love dogs. We have a bunch. Do you think I could write a musical about dogs? And he said, absolutely. And so with him and um, some other lyricists, we created a musical called Bark. I didn't want to call it Dogs. Mm-hmm. And 
in L.A., we rented a theater that seated about 60, 65 people on a Monday and Tuesday for two weeks in a row, right? Because they're not normally used on those nights. And the first night, all the seats were taken. And the second night, we had standing room only. And I should mention that it rained on both those nights, which it never rains in Los Angeles. (laughs) But yet still, we were full. Wow. Next week on Monday... We had so many people standing that we couldn't get everyone in. The next, and it was again still raining, right? Wow. And on the next night, the fire department came and made us not let any more people in because it was so crowded. And so I thought to myself, you know, maybe we can open this as a musical and make it successful. And so in about eight months later, we had rented a a larger theater and hired a director and a choreographer and all of that stuff. And it opened and it ran for two years, pretty much sold out every night. Incredible critical acclaim. The Humane Society, for the first time in their history, endorsed a commercial entity. Really? Yeah. And because it just, it's all from the dog's point of view. Uh Uh-huh. And it's kind and thoughtful, but hilarious. Mm -hmm. And the characters, there's six characters, right? They're all dogs. The first one is Chanel, the female. And she's a Bichon Friche. And she's a soprano that loves opera. And so she sings Aria. The middle female dog is (laughs) um, Missy. And she loves the puppies because she can't have any herself. She was in a puppy mill, right? Mm. They ruined her. The third dog is owned by Jewish people, Golda, and so she kvetches the entire (laughs) show. And then the guys, there's the puppy named, of course, Ramananov, and uh, (laughs) he's a Jack Russell, high-energy, crazy, funny. The middle male dog is a mutt, um, part pit bull named Sam, but he cross-dresses as a chihuahua. <laughs> and then we have a chocolate Labrador named King who ends up dying. <laughs> it's a very funny show, but sometimes poignant. Uh. And he sings his song because there are no humans in the show, right? Mm-hmm. But he, he tells the other dogs he needs to talk to his master, his owner, who was uh, the, his boy Billy, right? Mm-hmm. And in this song, he says to his owner, it's time to let me go, right? Oh. And to uh, let me, you know, go into that grassy field. Yeah. Um, you would have to mock the theater up after that song. Well, I would think so. And I got so many letters from people. I didn't know how much grief I was doing on to a dust. And then there was this police officer in Redondo Beach, which is a southern suburb of L.A. And I had gone down there and met with the police canine unit when I was writing the show because I was thinking about having one of the dogs be a police dog. Mm -hmm. And so they demonstrated the training. It was all very exciting. So he calls me after we've been running a year. And he said, David, can I use that song? For a funeral. And 
I said, yes. And, and he said, do I need written permission? I said, I'll send it to you. And I said, who died, right? And his dog had died. Aww. He had been chasing a criminal who had bags of cocaine and the dog had bitten into the criminal's pants and ingested a large amount of cocaine. Oh, no. They sent me videos of this funeral. There were 500 police officers, all these dogs, and they had a video of his dog with him, you know, running and while they played this song. Oh, oh. Oh. It was overwhelming. But so that stuff makes you happy, even though, because you know that you contributed to something good. Yes. Right. And that was, so that was very cool. Wow. Oh, <laughs> kind of teary eyed thinking of my pup. Well, how did you go about, like, you obviously didn't write that song thinking, okay, this is going to make someone cry. It came from somewhere. What is your composition process? I, I personally like to have the lyric first, uh -huh. right? And so that song was written by Gavin Dillard, who's an incredibly iconic uh, gay poet mm -hmm. and has all sorts of books out there on his poetry that I had read before I got to meet him. Um, but he had just sent me the lyric and said, do you like this? And generally my process is I write it one way and then I write it another and then I write it another and I so I can see which way I like, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because I mean a lyric will let you go, okay, this needs to be up tempo and da 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 da. But it could be swing or it could be jazz, it could be blues, you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so but with that one song, I wrote it in a day and a half which is so rare for me to write that quickly because mm -hmm. I just knew it had to be simple. I was so blown away by the beauty of the lyric. I'll send it to you after the project. Yes, please do. Because it is really, it's just beautiful. And so that, that one worked out easily. Hold me one last time in your loving arms, my friend. Kiss me, Master Kind, for time and fate we cannot bend. So writing for theater must be so instantly gratifying because you can go and you can watch people's reactions to your music and you can see that connection that you're making. Did you go watch your own performances or were you kind of like, ah, no? Oh, no, I went. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love seeing it. Know that where I go, I will wait for you Until you cross that sea of blue Where we'll both run on legs made new And jump as pups and children do In a grass... Now, you did that and you performed live, but you also recorded a lot when you were in L.A. What's the... How is that process different from recording to playing live? It's very different. Um, so as you just mentioned earlier, it's amazing the difference in the quality of sound of the recording depending on the engineer and the mic placement. Yep. And it wasn't until I recorded in Capitol Records, which was fun, uh, on the piano used by Nat King Cole. 
Oh, wow. Uh, that was the Gershwin album. And then I recorded at Great Studios. But the one that I learned the most from was Todd A.O. Studio. Mm-hmm. And my husband is a, a music ed- was a music editor for A-list films. Remember the Titans, Princess Diaries, Armageddon, Enemy of the State, on and on and on. Wow. And so he knew all these people in the film industry, big time people. Yeah. And Bob Batterney, his supervisor, when, because I wanted to record Ned Warren's world premiere of his eight etudes for piano. Mm-hmm. And I worked on it almost two years, learning, mastering, memorizing. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It makes Prokofiev look easy. And <laughs> I had gone to see Mr. Warren and get his input. I'll tell you about that in a minute. That was crazy. <laughs> and, and so Bob Batterney got Sean Murphy, who is like a legend and who's won Oscars on on uh, music edit engineering. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like big time. Yeah. He got him to record my album. No. And, and for like $2,000 rather than the 80 usually charge. What? Just because he knew him? Is that, how did that happen? Because Bob asked Sean Murphy because Bob loved me. And so Sean did it, right? And I think that Bob told him that the music deserved his attention. And the, no one had recorded those etudes before. Mm-hmm. And I can see why. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so what he did, everybody puts their mics different ways, right? Right, right. But so what he did was he had a set of mics 20 feet away from the piano. Right. At at pretty tall. Mm -hmm. And then you come into 10 feet and he had a set of mics uh, half as tall. And then you came in four feet, you had more mics, and then you had mics inside. The oh, that's amazing. Well, you have to have the resources to have yeah. this. Yeah. Well, and, the, and the room, too. And the, room. the room was huge. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, you know, depending on the engineer is what you get. Yes. And I'm not knowledgeable enough to say I need less EQ on this or whatever, because I don't know what that'll do to the sound. Mm -hmm. I have an idea, but I'm not, I know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. But so that was really interesting. And that happened to be 9-11 when they blew up the World Trade Center. That was the day I was going to record. And I, I was aghast because I could not afford to not show up and then to, and to lose the $4,000 or whatever right. it was I had paid for the recording studio, not to mention the engineer, et yeah. cetera. And yeah. so I went and recorded on that day. Oh my goodness. It was, it was interesting because everybody was very upset. Of course. And in, in a perfect world, I wouldn't have been able to say, I'll do this in two weeks. But right. there was no way. And right. so that was that was pretty crazy. Yeah. Do you think some of that kind of shock entered into your playing in the recording? Yes, I do. Mm. Well, and then 
you got a very good review on that, didn't you? I got, yeah, tons. Yes, from Ned Roram said, he adds that indefinable element of himself, which is the magic of all true interpreters. That's very high praise. I liked his, the first part of his comment. Well, yes, that's pretty funny. He plays the right note with the right tone at the right time. What more can you ask him? <laughs> I mean, that's exactly who Ned Forum is. He's, he's very straightforward and pithy. And I just, when I got that, I went, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you said that it was a fun story, how, you, how he helped guide you in your interpretation of this. That music is so hard. And yes. There's one part in the 882. It's only about 25 minutes total, right? Mm -hmm. One would think you could learn it in a month. Mm -hmm. No way. I mean, it's just in the 882, there's like 30 measures or so. There are three staves going on. So imagine this in your head. The top stave is 13-4 time signature. Okay. Right? And so there's a series of quarter notes in no pattern all over the piano. It doesn't, he's not bound, a lot of ledger lines. Okay. The middle stave is seven, two. And so there are seven half notes in that stave that are all over. (laughs) The bottom stave is five, one. So there are five whole notes. And so what he would do, and so... The only notes, I figured this out mathematically. Yeah. Only notes that go exactly together are the downbeats. That's what I was thinking. I was like, none of those notes are going to end up at the same time. They're all just slightly off, right? And then what he did that was like diabolically evil. So you have those 13 quarter notes that there are no rhyme or reason to. Right. And in every subsequent measure, he would alter two, three, or four of them by a half step. Okay? And so, like, where it was a G here, the next measure is going to be a G flat. Oh right? And he would do that in every stave. And so, ultimately, what your brain has to do is to memorize every friggin' note. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was a mental challenge beyond anything I've ever had to do. I mean, if you think about like Prokofiev's Seventh Sonata, the last movement that's in uh-huh. seven eight. Yeah. It's all in seven eight, right? Right. You can get into a groove. And there's a lot of repetition. Right. And even though the, it goes out from that repetition, it's patterned. Right. None of this is patterned. And it sounds very cool. Okay as a performance, mm-hmm. but I asked, and, and so I asked Mr. Warm about a year or so into it, if I could come play for him what I had learned on mm-hmm. his etudes and get his input. Yes. So he said, yes. And so I went to Nantucket, which is where his summer home is. And he's a very unusual man, <laughs> to say the least. But, really? Mm-hmm. But I learned so much from him. One of the etudes is called um, Slow Fast, and it's a study in sevens. Dan, 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 dan. And then it changes and it goes. 
and goes back and forth between those two ideas, right? Okay. Uh-huh. So I play that for him. And he and he says to me, so what is this, David? And I said, well, it's obviously a conversation. And he said, I'll, I'll tame the language down. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> said, of course, it's a conversation. But who's doing the talking? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, of course you know. Who's talking to who? And I, I said, I, I said I'm mortified, embarrassed, but I have no earthly idea who's yeah. talking to who. And he looked at me with total disgust, and he said, <laughs> "It's either a married couple or a gay couple." And the first one is going, "You don't help me with the dishes." And you never take out the trash. And then the other one says, but I go out and work and I make all the money and I have to come home and listen to this crap. (laughs) (laughs) And so that gave me a beautiful, vivid picture. Yes. To play that. I never played that piece the same way again. And he did that for each of them. Uh, that was the most entertaining. Oh my! But they were all—they all informed the way I played, and it solidified for me that when you play anything, you need a picture of what you're playing in your head, yeah. right? That it should be the weather, a person, an emotion, an event, a conversation a fight, whatever. And so I I really, from that day on in my life, made it a point not to perform if I didn't know what I was performing. called the Americans uh-huh. and why I didn't publicize the fact marketing wise it's only homosexual composers and they're all American and they're all living and because I love modern music I love American music and Ned Warren one of the reasons I admire him so much is uh, Samuel Barber, Truman Capote, Leonard Bernstein, all those guys were gay, but they didn't let people know publicly, right? Mm-hmm. Ned Warm came out in the 50s, and I have such great respect for his courage in doing that. And it doesn't mean he doesn't complain about it now, that he never got the respect and the admiration that he deserved musically because of that at that time. And that probably is true, but irrespective, he's got worldwide acclaim for all sorts of stuff. And one of the main 
uh, things that I find so amusing and ironic. So much of his relig- of his liturgical music is performed in Hoboken Baptist Church, where they don't know that they're singing music by an atheist oh. homosexual. <laughs> I just find that too perfect. He's he's quite a character. mentioned that you love to perform for the people who feel left out or they feel like the other. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. I was an other. (laughs) And so as you look back in your own life, there are people that you so loved as a kid and as a teenager and as an adult, the performers that you were just drawn to for whatever reason musically, physically, emotionally. As we become adults, we make better choices that more accurately represent us, right? Mm -hmm. And I just know that that there are certain people and and pieces of music that and that music itself allowed me to escape the baggage of bigotry when I was a child and just forget that that existed. And that it gave me strength as I grew up and grew older to value myself. Every blank blank has an opinion, right? Mm-hmm. I don't value their opinion if I I can value them as a person, but not value their opinion. People that are homophobic, I just don't get it. It's 2022. You know, I, mm-hmm. I don't understand racism. I don't understand misogyny, I don't understand any kind of xenophobia or homophobia. And if you look at people who are artists, the vast majority of them, anecdotally, from my point of view, are screwed up by their childhood because of those reasons I just listed. And they find ways to transcend it and overcome it. And I'm sure in your own life, you know, plenty of people that use art as a way to express when they can express in the normal, the normal mores of our society. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I love to play for people that that find me interesting. <laughs> I think it would be hard for you not to be interesting. <laughs> you have such a great life, great stories. What's um, what's your favorite memory of your whole career? That's really hard. I uh, know. Opening Night of Bark was really special. Mm. Um, I played with Barry Manilow when he was on tour, and he would do one voice singing, and, and he would let a local group come in and sing. And so... They, because of my studio in Memphis, they reached out to us. And so I got to play with Behind Barry Manilow for 11,000 people. That was fun. (laughs) I mean, there there are a number of really moments that I will never forget. It's sort of of hard to say which is. Yeah, Yeah. 
So many. And I'm surprised that you have that regret of not going back to school mm-hmm. because you've had such a rich and amazing career without it. Why do you still regret not going back? Well, I, you know, when I went to L.A., I sought out and found some exquisitely gifted teachers, Karen Connect. But I learned so much from them, right? Yeah. But I would love to have completed my formal education at Juilliard or Eastman or somewhere like that. And I have had a very rich life. And so I don't regret it in that I would give up what I've done. But I think that it's important in your life to do for you, right? Mm. That's the lesson I've learned in life, to not defer your choices for what other people want, because only you can make those choices. And in our society, we put so much pressure on kids to do this because their church wants you to, your mother wants you to, your father, your grandmother, your friends. And I think we should instead imbue children, especially young people and even adults, with the idea to gather the information and to not make emotional decisions, make decisions based on data. And in that sense, my younger brother's death was a tragedy, unending, but it was not the right choice for me to alter my life in that way, you know? Mm. And so that's what I regret because it took me another 10 years to learn not to do that, (laughs) to learn to make your own choices. So is that the advice you would give young musicians is to make your own choices? Uh Uh-huh. Educate yourself, practice, practice, practice. You know, perfect practice makes perfect, not practice. Perfect Mm -hmm. practice to focus If you want to practice 40 minutes to have intense focus and do it to the best of your ability, 10 minutes, 20, if you're going to practice, do it right. That would be my advice. (laughs) David, thank you so much. Thank you so much for for your stories and um, sharing your life well lived. It's such an amazing and rich life, and I'm so grateful that I've met you and that you came and shared your story with me today. Thank you so much. You too, too. Thank you for letting (laughs) us your delightful student. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. A very special thank you to pianist, composer, and arranger David Troy Francis for sharing his time and his excellent stories with us today. If you'd like to learn more about David, his albums, the films he's recorded for, or Bark, which has been performed internationally and is the third longest-running production in Los Angeles theatrical history, We'll have links to all of this, as well as information on the composer Ned Roram, in this episode's show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. In today's episode, you've heard Rachmaninoff's prelude in B-flat major, opus 23, number 2, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder from David's album Be Still My Soul, American Hymns Revisited, volume 2, 
At the Park, and The Grassy Field from David's hit musical Bark. And finally, Etude Number no. 4, Slow Fast, composed by Ned Roram and premiered by David Troy Francis in his album, The Americans. Each of these albums can be found and purchased at David's website, davidtroyfrancis.com. Musicians vs. the World is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. Also, if you're more of a visual person and are interested in seeing our faces, you can now find us on YouTube on our Musicians vs. the World channel. And if you want to help us reach more people that may be interested in today's topic, please share this episode with them or leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you need to reach us, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at frostedlens.com. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and have a great day.